The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, y'all. This is Houseguest, and I am your host, Kenzie Elizabeth. Think a Gen Z wannabe Martha Stewart meets Dolly Parton trying to live in a Nancy Myers movie in her 20s. We talk all about life, relationships, navigating your 20s, closing out the bars, or waking up at 5 a.m., depending on our vibe that week. Ultimately, living our best lives and figuring it out along the way. So come hang out. Sometimes I have guests on who do really cool things, some of my best friends, or it's just me and my house that I spend way too much time in. So let's get into the show. Hi, y'all. Today, we are learning how to get rich, okay? I'm actually not really kidding. We have Vivian Tu, aka Your Rich BFF, on the show. I read her book. Highly, highly recommend. It's called Rich AF, The Winning Money Mindset That Will Change Your Life. The reason I wanted to have Vivian on the show is because fresh from undergrad, she started working on Wall Street and she was surrounded by a lot of really rich people. And she started to spot differences between, you know, rich people and the rest of the world and what they were doing differently. And she's really like spelling it all out for us. And also the book was really digestible. I feel like a lot of finance books and a lot of financial talks are really overwhelming. There's a lot of shame tied to money. There's a lot of emotion tied to money. And it just feels overwhelming, like honestly, a lot of the time. And Vivian really, the way she lays it out, it's a lot more digestible. It's a lot more helpful in my opinion. And I think you guys are really gonna like this. We're talking about everything from like HSAs to retirement, to like how to say no to that bachelorette you don't want to go to and spend $5,000 on. You know what I mean? And also, most importantly, what the rich people are doing so we can learn and be more like them and we can take those tools and get rich. You know what I mean? Money's a great thing. It's a tool. It's freedom. And I love this episode. I think it is such a good episode on finance and such a great time. I'll have this book also in the show notes below. I highly recommend it. You guys know I love my books. So anyways, without further ado, let's welcome Vivian on to the show. Everyone, we have our rich BFF here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I finished your book literally this morning at Dry Bar. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you've gotten through the whole thing already. Of course. I'm a big reader. Okay. A big Kindle girl, big reader. Love that. But what I really like about your book is it's very digestible. Like a lot of like anything finance, I feel like there's so much shame and anxiety around mm-hmm. it. And I didn't feel that at all. And I felt like I learned a lot. Yeah, because you're talking to the girl's girl, like yes. your friend from college who also made the same stupid mistakes, may have texted that guy back one more time than she probably should mm-hmm. have. Like I did it all. I made all of the dumb money mistakes. And now basically I feel like I get to talk to people who could be anybody's college best friend. Like I could be anybody's college best friend. Like I'm telling you all the times I messed up so that you don't have to, so that you get to be smarter and better than me. We love that. Yeah. We're going to learn how to get rich today. Let's do it. You know what I loved the most that you were talking about okay. in the book is like things that rich people do. Yes. So can you please just dive into this? And I love how you're talking about how rich people talk about money all the time. Yeah. And that is actually so true. Yeah. It is so true. So true. So true. Listen, if you've ever been to a Soho house or the country club or you're on the golf course and there are two guys teeing off, having a cigar, having a beer, It's not surprising at all to hear people talking about how much they make, their real estate investments, what's in their portfolio, what are they planning to do with their like trust funds or wills or what have you. And so I'm just curious, like, why is it cool for them to do it? But for regular people like us, regular girls, regular young people who maybe don't have a lot of money, 
why is it weird and awkward for us to talk about it? It's not. It's just like a myth. It's very much like a PR move made by rich people that it is embarrassing to talk about money if you don't have it. And that keeps a lot of us in the dark. It lets us not know how much we're worth. It makes us feel like negotiating is bad. It essentially just keeps us at a disadvantage. So at this point, I'm very much of the camp of like, do as they do, not as they say. Love that. Women especially need to be Mm -hmm. talking about money because you don't know, like this example, I understand it's not like relatable to a lot of people, but just thinking like when I started on YouTube 10 years ago, my friends, I had the same friends, like the friends that everyone sees me on trips with yearly. We all were talking about what we were charging for rates, what we should be taking, what you charge for whitelisting, what you do. And this is before we had management. And that was the only way that we knew that one, we could actually make a career out of it. And two, we weren't getting taken advantage of. Yep. But how else are you supposed to know? So then take that to salaries. And it's like so many women aren't talking about money. And it's like, you need to be talking about money because you need to know what you can be charging, what you should be negotiating for. It's really important. It's so important. And I think about like my very first brand deal, right? I was so scared that if I said any number, they were going to be like, screw you. We're not working with her. I had like 200, 250,000 followers on TikTok at the time. And I was over the moon to get $1,200 for three videos. Oh, wow. So $400 a video. (laughs) And I was like, wow, this is a great deal. Looking back, I'm like, that could not have been a worse deal. Mm -hmm. I was doing all of this work. I was ideating, filming, editing, posting, utilizing, you know, my reach and doing so much legwork for this brand to then find out like people with my size following were getting five to $7,000 a video, it blew my mind. And I didn't know that at the time. And I'm very fortunate now I have an agent and management who gets to help me and do that a little bit. But like, this is so relevant. I worked in the corporate world and there were times that I felt really shy about asking for what I was worth. And I'm very lucky. My very first boss was a woman. She became my manager. She's my mentor. And as soon as I stopped working for her, she was like, you need to ask for more money. You need to negotiate. You need to ask everybody for a raise every single year, promotion, whatever you can get, ask for it. And I was like, well, how am I supposed to do that? And she was like, if you don't, you're not going to get it. And those budgets come in earlier in the year So you need to be banging down the door, reminding them that you care about money, that you care about that promotion and that you've done the work to deserve it. And because of that, I was able to double my salary every single year I worked in the corporate world for six years. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. What are some other things that the rich people are doing? So I think one thing to really remember is rich people are super entitled. And we know that, right? Mm -hmm. You've seen some lady at the front of, you know, the the delivery line or like the the restaurant line. And she's just chewing out some poor 18 year old who's like, that guy is not the reason why your fries are cold. Yeah. Like who has out. literally nothing to do with this. Situation. Correct. And, you know, it's a guy at the UPS who like can't help her figure out how to send her package or like whatever. Like this is like horrible. And we see these examples on social media and we have been told that being entitled is bad. But in some cases, being entitled is a great thing because it reminds you that you have value and that your business has value. So what I say is like be entitled with companies that work for you and people don't remember that they work for you. So, for example, if you get hit by a late fee with from your bank, 
you know, you can call them and just be like, hi, I've been with the bank for this many years. I'm a good customer. This is a one-time issue. Something happened. Could you do do me a courtesy, a one-time courtesy and waive this fee? And you would be shocked the number of times they'll say yes. And it's because these companies spend thousands of dollars every single year to get clients like you. And it costs them a lot of money to get those clients. So once they have you, they don't want to lose you. They'd much rather waive your $35 fee than go and hunt down another you. Okay. I also think like knowing your worth is huge too. And I feel like often when it comes to money or even charging the work for in a business thing, it's, I feel like it feels almost personal. It does. And then people are just not, they're not making that step out of fear. Like what advice would you have to that person? Yeah. So I feel like this really comes into play if you like your boss and you're like, oh, like I feel so bad asking for more money. Do I look greedy? Like we say all of these horrible things about people who like money, who care about money, like they're gold diggers, they're shallow, whatever. That's not true. Like I'm not here doing this for my health. This is my job. And so you have to remember that corporations are selfish and you need to look out for yourself and be selfish too because major corporations, if in a moment, it didn't make sense to keep you around, they would have no problem letting you go. And that would just be a business decision. It wouldn't be personal. When you ask for more money, that money doesn't come out of your boss's pocket. It comes out of a business banking account that is literally set aside to pay staff. So don't feel bad. That money should already be allocated there. And corporations that are planning to run and run smoothly should have that money on hand. So really, we shouldn't feel bad about asking for money. It's what we need and it's what we work for. Absolutely. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I have benefited greatly from therapy. I am right back in therapy right now. I have been in and out of talk therapy since I was in the fifth grade. And I'm just really passionate about mental health in general. And honestly, this is a very timely ad for my life right now. But I highly, highly, highly recommend trying out therapy. I just think it is one of the most important things. I would say in my life, the relationships that I am the proudest of are honestly the ones that I've worked the hardest on, which is largely my family. I love my family. I'm such a family girl. But obviously, I mean, we all have issues. We all have families. You get it. Okay. Right. I think a common misconception about relationships in general is that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to make them great. Therapy can be a place to work through the challenges you face in all of your relationships, whether with friends, work, or significant other, or anyone. So I actually have been in therapy with a couple of people in my family um, throughout the years, and it's really, really benefited. I've never been closer with my family than I am now. And honestly, I largely have therapy to think that we've gotten to this place. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with the licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com slash Kinsey today to get 10% off your first month. That is betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Kinsey. So again, thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring today's episode. 
Hi, I'm Caroline Stanbury, star of The Real Housewives of Dubai, entrepreneur, wife, and mother of three, once divorced and now remarried to a much younger man, uncut and uncensored with Caroline Stanbury follows me as I live my life unapologetically and shows you that there is life after 40. I discuss everything from relationships, health, wellness, business, parenting, friendships. I'm here to let you know that not only is there a life after divorce, but you have the power to make it your best one yet, just like I did. Listen to all new episodes every Wednesday, anywhere you get your podcasts. What are some like financial mistakes that you've made in your 20s? <laughs> Where do we begin? I mean, the list, it goes on and on. I think one, I did not realize that you should not close your oldest credit card. So I had this like rinky dinky credit card, whatever. It wasn't exciting. Not great rewards. No lounge access. No travel perks. I was like, OK, this is stupid. I start making a little bit of money on Wall Street and I'm like, oh, I'm fancy, fancy now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get the super ultimate platinum deluxe diamond mega mega flash flash card. You're like out with the old and yeah. with the new baby. Like I'm trying to have a metal card. There's <laughs> yeah. supposed to be a little heft. Like this needs to yeah. sound like something. Some, like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I got to sound like I got money when I lay yeah. this down on the restaurant table. And so I canceled this old credit card thinking that not having an outstanding line of credit would actually be a benefit to me. And in mm -hmm. fact, it dropped my credit score by 60 points because that was my oldest line of credit. And credit scores are determined by a number of factors, one of which is how long have you been trustworthy? And that was my oldest line of credit. So it shortened my history by half the time. And when I made that mistake, there was nothing I could do to fix it. I just had to basically wait it out and like keep paying my cards in time and in full and being responsible. But it sucked because I didn't know. And that was a big mistake. I would say a second mistake, and I think a lot of young people who live in urban settings can often attest to this. We buy things that we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Absolutely. Because suddenly everybody's working and suddenly everybody has a designer bag. Everybody has a gym membership to that fancy gym with the steam room and the sauna and the good face products and the fancy, you know, minty towels. And you're spending a ton of money. And even as you're making more money, your spending is essentially keeping up. And at the end of the year, you're like, wait, I'm no better off than when I was making less. And you're like, where did all of my money go? And I would say being a victim of lifestyle inflation is a huge factor that really kind of hindered me in my early 20s. And I wish that I hadn't done all of those things. There is a whole section of my closet that's like stuff that costs a lot of money. So I feel too guilty to give it away or sell it or whatever. Or, you know, I have some weird emotional sentimental attachment to, but like, frankly, were horrific purchases. Mm -hmm. Either the shoes really, really hurt the bag doesn't match with anything. The top is really uncomfortable. I'll never wear that dress again because I got photographed in it a bunch of times. Like a lot of money wasting, I think, happened. And I think had I set that money aside and spent it on things that I really value, like experiences with my friends, like you mentioned, going on vacation with your friends, like I would have a better feeling about that money, even if I'd spent it. Definitely. Keeping up with the Joneses is so real. I will say Living in from living in L.A. to living back in Dallas, even just what I think about I want to spend money on has totally changed. I also think it's an age thing. Yes. Like as I've gotten older, I care less about certain yes. things. 
But I'm someone who like, I care deeply about my house. Like I have a homemaking brand. That is my, like Martha Stewart is my idol. Like yeah. <laughs> I love my house, right? So like, that is like what I actually, I'm opposite. Like I love to travel and I, mm-hmm. I do, but like I'm more of a home person. I'm a homebody. Like that's what I care about and spending money. So now I'm like repulsed by the idea of spending money on, not on trips because experiences, yeah, yeah, yeah. everything, but like I like bags are like I love a bag like that is my so, thing. I mean who doesn't love a bag but I just don't want to like there's like three bags that I want as like my life bags and like I want a cu- another one another three or four years like yep whereas before I was like I always felt like I had to have like the, the new next thing new the thing. next thing the you know and now I just I don't know like even looking at it sometimes I'm just like I just feel so not great about it you have a lot of buyer's remorse yeah And I felt the exact same way. So I talk about this in my book, Rich AF. My very first bag that I bought, I bought for myself. It was a $3,000 black leather Prada bag. It was amazing. It's black on the outside, red on the inside. It's stunning. And when I bought that bag, I was sweating at the counter, obviously. (laughs) Swiped that credit card and I knew I could pay for it in full because I would budgeted for it. Nothing has ever felt as good as that bag because I earned it. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I had basically earned every stitch on that bag and I'd worked so hard for it and I'd saved up and it was just amazing. And I bought my second bag. And when I left the store, when I got home, I looked at that bag and I was like, I feel really bad about this purchase. Like I feel a lot of guilt. I feel like that money could have been going to so many other things that I wanted instead of this. And I was so surprised because if bag one makes you feel a certain way, the assumption is that bag two is mm-hmm. going to make you feel even better, right? And that just wasn't the case. And I think it has to go back to what we value. And I think a great tool that everybody listening can use, this is my favorite thing ever, is using the is it worth it equation. And a lot of people know this as value-based spending. So I think we oftentimes struggle with the value of a dollar, not in the way that like our dads would like lecture us and be like, you don't know the value of a dollar because you don't work. But like truly we can't visualize what that dollar stands for. So let's visualize it in something that we do understand. So when you go and buy your next thing that you're thinking about buying, just close your eyes for a second, think about the price and divide it by the amount of money you make on an hourly basis that you take home. This is not before taxes. This is after taxes. And suddenly, if you make $20 an hour, those $80 leggings are not $80 because you don't even know what $80 means. But you sure do know what $20 an hour times four hours of work feels like. Are you cool to sit at your desk and do your job for four hours? If somebody gave you a pair of yoga pants for those four hours, would you feel good about that? Yeah, that's really good. In many cases, the answer is no. I loved what you said in the book about nothing, which is basically what you're saying now. Nothing feels as good as the first bag. Nothing. Which is very, very true. Like the first experience, it's so, it's like almost like empowering, you know? It is like, I can do this. I'm independent. I make my own money. And then, you know, too much of anything is not good. Well, it's like, it's not even the bag that made it so special. It's like what the bag represented. Exactly. It was the fact that, you know, me, a girl who came from a very regular schmegular family, didn't have a ton of generational wealth, didn't have money like that. Like there were girls in college that I would like that were like in my sorority toting around Hermes bags because they just like their families just had money like that. Yeah. And mine. Wild. Yeah. But like mine didn't. 
And so for me to be able to have my first big girl job, not have to rely on some sugar daddy, not have to rely on anybody to buy this bag for me, not my parents, not a man. I was able to walk into a store and with my money buy this bag. That's what that represented to me, that freedom, that power that I could do anything I put my mind to. And that's why that bag felt so good, not just because it was a bag, but because it meant that I was someone who didn't need to depend on anybody else. I like what you said about freedom. I feel like to me, money is freedom. It is. Because it's freedom to build whatever life you want. It's freedom to start whatever business you want. It really is. So I want to learn more about like building wealth and getting to the point where you're really living rich. Like there's a difference between having a lot of money and actually living living rich. rich. Yeah. So please just, I mean, literally tell us every single thing you know. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Just kidding. But seriously, tips. Yeah. So basically, I think to your point, there's a huge difference between having a lot of money and living rich. And that is understanding that there is a certain point and it's different for everybody where you have enough and knowing that you are going to be taken care of, knowing that you have this abundance mindset of feeling like, I don't need to fight after every single opportunity that comes my way right now because there will be more opportunities where that came from. And that rich mindset is the difference. You can have a lot of money, but if you're constantly in fear that, you know, something bad's going to happen and you feel like you need to hoard it and you're not out there living your life and doing good things with that money, like that's no way to live. Whereas truly living rich is knowing you have enough money to take care of you in any situation, to buy your time back so that you don't need to always be constantly hustling and bustling and also being able to get yourself out of any bad situation. So what I say is, is like when you are truly living rich, when you are rich AF, when you get a blowout and, you know, in New York City, you get on the subway and you come out of the subway station and it's raining, you can afford to buy an umbrella from the street hawker. Mm hmm. Or you can afford to get into an Uber to get to your next destination because you have that. And that's a really like cutesy example. But like it's also the same as like you have enough money to know that if at any point you had a partner who happened to, you know, God forbid, be abusive, you would be able to get your shit and leave right away. And you wouldn't have to think about it. You wouldn't have to think about where is my next meal coming from? Where is the roof coming from over my head? You would just only be able to prioritize your safety and your well-being. And there are things that money can't buy, including like happiness and well-being. But that's not true. I do think money can buy happiness. Yeah. And I just feel like feeling like there's enough and that you have a life that you love is truly being rich versus constantly feeling like you need more. Again, I think it really does all come back to freedom. Yeah, it does. So to get rich, you were talking about like where your money should go. Okay, so first emergency fund and then next investing, right? So the second step actually is ranking your debt. Okay. And then anything above 7%, I typically like to say rank your debt from highest to lowest interest rate. Anything above 7%, pay that off before you start investing because that debt is growing at such a fast rate. You won't actually make more money investing than you would save paying off that debt first. And typically debt that is above 7%, high interest rate debt, a lot of it, most of it, credit cards. Credit card debt is the scariest, growiest debt because the annual percentage rates on those things 
are like 20, 22, 25%. And so that scary. compounds fast. Whereas if you had gotten federal student loans a couple of years ago or bought your home when I did, you could have a mortgage rate that has a two handle on it, 2%, 3%. You don't need to be in a rush to pay that back because the cost of borrowing is so cheap and odds are good. You can make more money investing your money because historically, even, you know, just if you invested in an index fund that tracked the broader market, you know, the S&P 500 has returned eight to 10% every single year on average. And last year returned 23%. So if you had a mortgage rate that was 3% and instead of paying off your mortgage quickly, you just made the minimum payment, but then took all of that extra money and put it into the market and you got 23% on that money you invested, that 23% paying even for the interest on your mortgage, you still would have a delta of 20% and you would have made 20%. Wow. Can we pause really quick and talk about credit cards? Yeah. Because credit cards and building credit is so confusing. Mm-hmm. The way they have done it is not fair. Okay. I am not a fan of this. I do know now because I've had to really figure it out. And I do listen to my dad about pretty much everything. Like, <laughs> I Anything like financial or business-wise, I'm always going to my dad. And my parents were... He, he was very helpful. With that being said, I've made a billion mistakes, but yeah. I am the first to listen to my mm-hmm. dad on this stuff. I have parents who will tell me and teach and I still am like, what the fuck? Like the time period is so annoying, credit utilization. And I feel like most people don't even know this because you're not taught this in school. No, never. And I feel like I, I feel like I know, but I don't. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I've, I have a question. Uh-huh. What is your favorite credit card? Probably my American Airlines just because of flights yeah. and travel. Okay. So... When I talk about credit cards, I always say this. Do not get a credit card unless you can confidently pay it off the full bill in full every single month on time. Obviously, there are extraordinary cases if you need to like make ends meet, you need to pay for food, whatever, and you can't do it. Like I get it. But try your very best to pay off that credit card on time in full. Things you need to keep in mind. To your point, credit utilization. Just because you have a credit limit of $10,000, that's a limit, not a target, okay? We should be spending less than 30% of our total credit limit. So if you have a credit card, $10,000 limit, you want to spend less than $3,000 on that credit card every single month. Why? Because when you're spending more than 30%, the credit bureaus and the people looking at, you know, your credit are like, hmm, it's kind of sketchy, like, why is she using so much of this? Like, is something bad about to happen? And then that dings your credit score. Whereas especially if you're able to keep your credit utilization below 10%, that's a sweet, sweet spot because that'll really help boost your credit score. And here's the big hack that no one ever realizes. Credit utilization is just a fraction, okay? It's how much of that credit line you're using divided by the entire credit line. And if you can't use less, what can you do to make that fraction smaller? It's you to make your credit line bigger. So what I actually recommend is every six to 12 months, you can either call or some people can do it on the portal, just depending on what credit cards you have. You can increase your credit limit and ask them to increase it. So suddenly, instead of your credit limit being $10,000, it's $15,000. But if you're still only spending less than $3,000, your credit utilization has gone way down because your credit limit is bigger. And by keeping that in mind, you're going to be able to boost your credit pretty meaningfully over the course of a few months. 
I have a question. Say I have an old credit card. Yeah. Like the one that you can't yes. and regret, but I'm not charging anything to it. Does that hurt your credit or should you always charge something? Not charging anything to that credit card does not hurt your credit. However, many credit card companies will actually close those cards down. They'll send you an, a, you know, a letter in the mail and basically be like, hey, if you don't put a charge on this in the next three months, we're shutting it down. OK, mm. and that's bad because if they shut it down, it's the same as if you were to call and close it. If it's your first credit card, I would say you can either upgrade it if you want like another better card or if you want to get rid of it because there's an annual fee on it that you don't want to pay anymore, you can downgrade it. And if there's no fee on it, you don't plan on upgrading it. It's just there. I would just say put a recurring subscription cost on that card, put it on auto pay and never think about it again. That's what I do for right. my very first, you know, my most, my oldest credit card now. It's not the one that I use regularly, but I put my Netflix subscription on it. So every single month, there's one charge on that card. I put it on auto pay, so I never think about it, but it makes sure that the card stays open and my credit score stays high. Okay, so what are other ways to build credit? So if you have no credit or low credit and you're just like, I don't even know where to begin, one thing you can do is get a secured credit card. So this is essentially how it works. Secured credit cards work just like regular ones, except you have to give me a security deposit so that I know I'm good and you won't like get out of Dodge and then I can't find you ever again. Right. Mm -hmm. So they typically have very, very low limits. I know like Discover It Secured has a good one for students. You give me $200 and now I give you a credit card with a $200 limit. I'm holding your $200. You Make, put responsible charges on that credit card. You're only putting very, very little because your limit's only $200. But, you know, you put a coffee on there, a book on there, and you pay it off in full every single month. Over time, that card will help you build credit so that you can eventually phase out and upgrade to a nicer card. And once you upgrade or change the card or do something else, you'll get that security deposit back. Let's say your credit is shot. It's horrible. Yeah. How do you fix that? So it is slow and steady over time, I think one of the easiest things that you can do is use a secured credit card. But here's another one. Unfortunately, in our society, most of the time, only the bad stuff gets reported. So like if you miss a payment, you best believe you're getting reported. Overuse your credit card, go past what you should in terms of percentage use. You best believe they are getting a call. That's so true in like every area of life. Yes. Only you, the bad only marks get reported. Only the bad stuff. None yeah. of the good reviews go in. Yes. Right? But what's one thing that a lot of us pay for on time, in full, every month, without fail, because we need to? Rent. Rent. And if you pay your rent on time every single month, your landlord very often does not report that to the credit bureaus. So what you can do is their services now where you can report, you can like essentially manually report your on-time rent payment. So if you're focused on getting your credit back up, you can contact one of them. Typically, you do oftentimes have to pay a small fee, but they'll report to the credit bureaus to make sure that your good marks, the A's you got in class, do show up on your report card as well as the C's and D's and E's. Another thing too that I read in your book and my mom actually went through because I had applied for something. I can't remember what it was. We ended up, I wasn't even checking my credit score. I got it back and it was so much lower than it should have been. And something was marked from a past apartment. Correct. That 
I basically I moved out of this apartment. One of the roommates had stayed and they told me it was going to be a new lease. But for whatever reason, I was still attached to it, even though they promised me up and down it was going to be a new lease. I find out literally three years later that like they had all these damages and all this payment and stuff. And it was like a four thousand dollar charge that came to me and not then it was this whole thing. And we had to, I had to call, it was like a whole thing, like calling and getting call. it off your yep, record. Exactly. Expunged. That's basically the synopsis. But I had to call and get it off and I would have never known how to not done it. But I was just young and I didn't really need to check my credit score for things. Yeah. So it's so important to be checking your credit report and your credit score often. I think I learned my lesson. Yeah. There's a myth that basically if you check your credit score, it goes down. That's not true. What I think people are referencing is that if you have too many hard inquiries, so essentially people checking your credit score for a purpose, essentially to issue you a loan, yes, that can ding your credit score. But if you are just checking it yourself, like a soft pull, a soft inquiry, that's actually good for your credit because oftentimes you do find mistakes like that. You can then contact the bureaus and be like, this was not me. They'll ask you to verify it essentially. And then once that happens, they'll take that negative mark off and your credit will shoot way up. So I just think checking your credit score and your credit report every single year, if not more frequently, is a good thing. And don't be shy about calling to remove marks that you don't recognize or that weren't yours. Mistakes happen all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's just so tragic when it's on your credit score. You yeah, because you're your like, wait, wait, wait. I just got a D on my report card and the D was for somebody else. Yeah. Like, this wasn't even me. I know. I'm like, this feels personal. Yeah. You know? Exactly. If there's one thing my friends and I love on the weekend, or honestly, I love to just keep stocked for hosting, it is an ice cold hard seltzer. The problem is the usual packs and flavors are just really dull and boring, okay? And that is why we are so excited that Truly is shaking things up with their new party pack. Truly believes life can be more refreshing when we can be real, let loose, embrace imperfection, and allow ourselves to be free from convention. That's why Truly has something for everyone in more than 30 unique flavors, including three lightly flavored mix packs, berry and new party pack. So Truly Hard Seltzer's new party pack has a flavor for everyone, making it perfect for you and your friends and honestly, again, hosting. They have four fan favorite flavors, including the brand new raspberry. It's got a little something for everyone. Bring it to wine night, bring it to book club, okay? Bring it to the, not the gym, maybe not the gym. Bring it to book club, okay? With this new pack, there is nowhere you can't bring at the party. Each flavor is super light, crazy refreshing, and made with real fruit juice with only 5% ABV on 100 calories and one gram of sugar in each can, Truly is the perfect drink to keep you on track with your New Year's resolution, unless your resolution was to have less fun. To find Truly Hard Seltzer near you, go to trulyhardseltzer.com slash locations. That's trulyhardseltzer.com slash locations. Truly Hard Seltzer, keep it light. Truly Hard Seltzer, beverage company, Boston, Massachusetts. Please drink responsibly. So let's move on to step three. Yeah. After dealing with your debt and moving on to investing. Yeah. So what investing tips do you have? Yeah. So I would say investing is one of those things that people think you can only do after you get rich. When in fact, how do you think rich people got rich in the first place? They invested. Mm-hmm. So I highly recommend that anybody who has an emergency fund already saved up 
who has paid down their high interest rate debt starts to invest, the easiest way to start doing that is to leverage a tax-advantaged retirement account. And these are things that you've probably heard of. It could be a 401k or a 403b through work. It could be an IRA or a Roth IRA that you can get as an individual. But the benefit of these is that you get a tax break at a certain point, either when you're putting the money in the account or when you're essentially eventually taking that money out in retirement. But you'll save on taxes. We all love avoiding taxes legally. What you do is you take your money from your cash, from your savings account, from your checking account, and you put it into these investment, these tax advantage retirement accounts. And that is where a lot of people make the big mistake. They put the money in and they're like, I'm done. You're not, babes. Imagine taking a pocket full of cash, going to the grocery store and doing a lap around the store and leaving and then being like, wait, why don't I have any groceries? It's like, well, you didn't buy any Mm -hmm. groceries. That's the same thing with investing. It's not enough to put your money into the account. You actually then have to take the money in the account and buy stuff. I did this and it sat there for like a year. Correct. And I was like, oh my God. And you're like, how come my investing isn't working? Yeah, I was like, wait a second. Yeah, you're like, how come like everybody's talking about like, making so much money investing. Like I've made a couple pennies. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, because it's sad in cash. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, when I saw that, I was like, oh, great. Love that. Yeah. So highly recommend people actually buy their buy investments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again, people always ask me and they're like, well, what do I buy? And I think one of the easiest things that you can do to tailor your investments to you is just to use a robo advisor. So many of us want to be rich AF. So many of us want to invest but we just don't have the time or frankly, the patience to do it. But technology is a thing now. We're not in our parents' generation. Robo-advisors are great because basically you go to a brokerage platform that has a robo-advisor. You take a quick quiz. You're like, hey, this is how old I am. This is how much money I make. This is how much money I have. And this is what my happily ever after looks like. Like, do I want kids? Do I want to get married? What state do I want to live in? Do I want to, you know, you tell them everything about yourself. They will then put together a portfolio that makes sense based on all of these things about you. And it's amazing because they then email you once every year or two or whatever to retake that quiz. So every so often, your portfolio keeps getting rebalanced to make sure it still fits your lifestyle. And it is so easy. You can do it in 45 minutes. And that's just an easy way to get invested starting today so that you don't have to keep waiting. Because what I hate to see is someone feel like investing is too intimidating or daunting. And they're like, I'll do it tomorrow. And then they're like, uh, tomorrow comes and they're like, ah, I'll do it next week. And then next week comes and they're like, ah, I'll do it next month. Yeah, that was me. And then a year down the road or 10 years down the road, you've missed out on that much time for compound interest to work on your ben- like to your benefit. It's really depressing. And then you're like, ah, I just should have started earlier. You don't get that time back. You can get anything more of in this life except time. So. Start early and often. If you don't know what to do, just use a robo-advisor. It'll get you there Which faster. ones do you recommend? There are tons available out to you. I would say brands like SoFi, Wealthfront, Betterment, Ally Invest, Fidelity now has a robo-advisor. Like they're all good. They're okay. all decent. Use the one that has a platform that you're most comfortable with because they all do a similar job. What percentage of your income should you be investing This is a very difficult question because it differs from person to person. Factors that will impact this are like, do you have debt? Factors that impact this are like, do you need to have extra emergency funds because you're supporting a family or, you know, live in a high cost of living area, like a major metro city. But 
if you can, what I like to say is if you can set aside 20% of your income to protect future you, that's a great number. And that's not just investing. That includes saving. That includes debt pay down. Basically, making a responsible choice and taking care of future you, 20% is a good rule of thumb. And it really sets you up for success in the future. What do you recommend having in your emergency fund? This depends. Again, always depends. I would say three to six months of living expenses in a high yield savings account is great if you are single as a Pringle, young, healthy. If you are the head of a household, if you've got a pet, kids, anybody who depends on you for income, you're going to want to get closer to probably six to 12 months of living expenses, nine to 12 months if you own a home and have a mortgage instead of rent, just because, frankly, the stakes are higher. You Mm -hmm. need to take care of more people, more things, more places. And having a little bit of a bigger nest egg is just going to give you a little bit more peace of mind. Really random question from here, but like, can you explain HSAs to me? Yes. Like, I'm confused. Yes. Okay. So this is so fun. It's one of my favorite things. Like the difference between us. Like, this is so fun. Yeah. I have no idea. Well, you know what? It's so fun because it's taken me years to understand it. But once I figured it out, I felt like I was the smartest woman on earth. It's really empowering. Yes. Like, I feel like in my financial journey, when I was younger, I started making money young because I started on YouTube when I was 16. Yeah. The idea of organizing my finances gave me instant anxiety, a pit in my stomach. And really? it wasn't even because I didn't have, like, money. I it just see that makes me sad to it, hear. It just stressed me out. Like, yeah. honestly, it was just very stressful. And then it was probably when I bought a townhouse in 2020 and I had moved. I was like, okay, like I'm going to get my like life together and very organized. Yeah. And then I started getting onto it. And the, I've noticed like the more I know, obviously, the, the better less, you feel, the better I feel and the less scary yes. it is. So I wish I would have done it at a younger age. Like I say that I listen to my dad. I really do. But I wish I would have listened at a younger yeah. age. You know, I think we all feel that way. Hindsight's 2020. Nobody's perfect. So don't beat yourself up about it. But I'm glad we're having financial mm-hmm. therapy right now. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Let me just break down HSAs in like the easiest possible way. So when you work at a corporation, oftentimes your health insurance is tied to that company. And you'll have options to choose from on your health insurance plan when you go through open enrollment, roughly September, October time period every year. And there are typically a couple options. The Cadillac of health insurance is a PPO, okay? But with a PPO, you're paying a very high upfront fee every single month called a premium. But your deductible, a.k.a. the extra money that you owe, is much, much lower. So essentially, I'm paying more up front. But when I actually go to the doctor, I'll pay less. Then you have kind of more of a middle of the road option, an HMO. And with an HMO, your premiums every month, your fees every month are medium. And when you go to the doctor, your fees are medium. Okay, And then there's kind of like the wheelbarrow option, like the golf Mm -hmm. cart option, which is called a high deductible health plan. So your monthly fees will be low or in some cases, no monthly premiums. So you'll be paying very little to nothing up front. However, when you do go to the doctor or need to see somebody, it can be pretty expensive. HDHPs typically only make sense for people who are very healthy, young, and 
just need to get preventative medicine every year. So you go get a physical every year and you if you're a woman, you go get a pap smear every year. And, you know, if you're also on a, you know, a, a vision plan or a dental plan, like you, like those are separate, but you're pretty healthy. You just kind of see the basics and that's it. With an HDHP, knowing that you may have higher fees later down the line in case you go skiing and tear your ACL or in case, God forbid, you find something, you need to get a scan, a biopsy, something's not feeling right, something goes wrong. Those fees can be really overwhelming. They're very high because you don't have the Honda Civic or even the Cadillac of health insurances. So what you can often do is fund something called a health savings account, an HSA. And I love to say that an HSA is the triple threat. She can dance, she can sing, she can act. (laughs) And the reason I say this is because you put money into an HSA pre-tax, so you don't have to pay tax on the money you put in. Oftentimes your employer will match it. So you'll get extra free money. You can spend that money on any qualified health, like health costs, like dent and like medical costs or even going to the pharmacy and getting stuff tax free. And then if you don't end up using all of the money in the HSA, once you get to retirement age, you can actually just take that money out and use it like a retirement fund and just pay the tax on it then. So not only is it a health account, but it can be used as a retirement account later on. And so there's just a lot of benefits to having one. I currently personally have a high deductible health plan with an HSA. So I'm able to like go to the doctor, see what I need to see. But generally speaking, I'm pretty healthy. I try to do the bare minimum, eat right, work out Mm -hmm. regularly-ish. And because of that, you know, I don't see too many specialists. Like I know my friend was a true like college athlete. She's got to go see her ortho like every other week. Yeah, And I'm like, we're different in that way. I don't have those injuries. Or I have a friend who, you know, has epilepsy and she has to go see a neurologist and like someone to prescribe her those medications. And she has a pre-existing condition and I don't. At worst, at worst, I'll go see a dermatologist probably like once or twice a year if my I'm just like really breaking out. I'm not feeling it. And that's okay. And I'd rather not pay so much in upfront fees for my medical care and pay later on in case I need to go because oftentimes the math makes more sense. Totally. What are some financial teachings that have become kind of normal in society that you think are harmful or not true? Yeah, that like debt's bad, that if you have debt, you're a bad person, that it's, you know, shameful. Yeah. I mean, in our parents' generation, there were finance gurus that would say things like, if you have debt, all you should be eating is rice and beans. That if you have debt, you should never- you're seen at a restaurant. Yeah, literally. So like if you're seen at a restaurant, it should be in the back washing the dishes. Like we're all we're thinking the same guy right now. Yeah, but I'm. it's just I find that attitude to be so negative and so shameful. And like maybe that worked in our parents generation. But like if I shamed or embarrassed one of my friends, they would immediately shut down. Like they would not take my advice. They would not listen to me. We just don't respond that way. And I think that's a good thing. I think we just Mm -hmm. have to think about things differently and in that vein, I would say debt's just a tool. The way we talk about it for rich people and people who are broke are is so different and it's very icky. So say we see a single mom who is struggling to make ends meet, go to the grocery store and put food that she cannot afford to pay off at the end of the month onto her credit card. 
we'll point our finger wag and be like, she's so irresponsible. She's so bad with money. What a terrible parent. We'll say all these horrible things about her. Trying to feed her damn kids. On the flip side, we see business moguls and CEOs, and entrepreneurs take out millions, tens of millions of dollars of debt. And we put them on the cover of magazines yeah. and we call them visionaries. And they're, you know, we don't even use the same word for debt for them. We call it leverage. Yeah. It's just, it's, say, and it's got it, that facelift. They say like use other people's money to make yes, more money. Like that's exactly. a very common term yes. in business. Yes. And so to have a word we use that is so negative for people who are lower income or moderate income and then have that exact same word, get the PR rebrand for rich folks yeah. is really unfair. It's a double and standard. to be seen as the smart move to make. Yes, of you course. You don't ever want to buy a house in cash because that money's sitting there. You could you be making more money off of that Exactly, money. exactly. And that is debt, is not buying a house in cash. Exactly. Like I have a mortgage and I'm no, you don't, you don't buy a house in cash like that money. If you can be, avoid it, yes. Yeah, because then you can be using that money also and like making more money. Exactly. I mean, I think people are shell-shocked when I say, oh, I have like, million of debt. And they're like, what? Like, you're in no position to be giving people, you know, financial tips if you've got that much debt. And it's like, yeah, I have that debt at a two and an eighth rate on my mortgage. I am a genius. Yeah. I'm borrowing money on the cheap. My money's elsewhere making me a ton of money. And the money that I'm making from that money is paying off that debt. Mm hmm. What? advice would you give to someone who's feeling a lot of shame around finances and it feels very overwhelming? I would say that you should talk to friends about money. I think a lot of that shame comes from like smothering feelings in and also feeling like you're the only person who struggles. Whereas, you know, the vast majority of Americans have debt. Like, Debt is as American as cherry pie and bald eagles. So true. It's part of the American dream. It's part of the American dream, right? Like the American government is so in debt, it's embarrassing. Yeah, actually. Like we're pointing fingers at anyone. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Like she broke. (laughs) I think it's really silly for us to feel like we are the only people in a horrible financial situation. You're not. Talk to your friends about money. It is so critically important to be able to set realistic expectations because I'll be honest, in my early 20s, And I'm not going to name names, but I had a friend who I was like, this girl is so much more financially responsible than me. She's so much better. Everything in her life is better. I just like, I don't know how she does it. And we were talking one day and she was like, oh, yeah, like my parents bought me this apartment in New York City after graduation and helped me with my mortgage payments every month. And I was like, wait, hold the phone. I pay my own rent based off of the paycheck that I get from work that I'm scrimping by to try and make. I didn't realize this girl didn't even pay her own rent, much less own the home and her parents were paying the mortgage. No wonder she had money to go to Mykonos in the summer. No wonder she had money for those designer bags and to go out to eat every single Friday. I didn't have that because I had other places my money needed to go. And, you know, I think I was really grateful that she opened up and told me that because had I always thought that she was just doing it on her own, I would have mentally just thought she was better at budgeting me or more responsible than me or made more money than me. And that just wasn't the case. The comparison is worse. The comparison, like comparison is truly the thief of joy. Yes. And like finding out that she and I were in different financial situations, like 
there was no hatred on my end that her parents were able to do that for her and like my parents couldn't. But like knowing that made me feel a lot better because I knew that I wasn't behind or it wasn't something that wrong that you were doing. Correct. It made me feel better. Yeah, it is. I again, I just think that like financial transparency is such an important thing. And I just talking about it in general, I have a story with I was with two friends. We were at dinner. They worked in similar field at different companies, same industry, different companies. And one of them was making over double her salary and she was less experienced, had been working at the job less. And we were talking about it. We were on the topic of why it's important to talk. I had just been talking about actually on the podcast with someone else about why it's important to talk about money. I think it was a Jason Tardick episode. And love him. I was on his podcast. I love him. Yeah. And we were talking about we were just talking about money and whatever. And it got brought up like salaries. And then they were like, well, we're in the same thing. And the look on her face. And now she is at a different company making even more. Yeah. Like she ended up moving jobs because obviously it's such a huge drastic change. But still. Here's the thing what people don't realize. Your two friends, your friend who was less experienced in making more and your friend who was more experienced in making less. Your friend who makes more by sharing her income, her number or whatever with your other friend, she doesn't suddenly, you know, go down in pay, right? Mm -hmm. But your other friend who is being underpaid now has the opportunity to go and ask for more because she knows she deserves it. And that type of information is so invaluable because this is the only way we can get it. Sure, there's Glassdoor, there's Fishbowl, but like there's something really special about knowing that like someone you know is doing this and it's not out of the realm of reality. And I think it's really powerful to empower our friends to ask for more money. Was it awkward in the moment? I'm sure not only awkward for the friend who makes more and might have felt bad for a second, but even worse for your friend who made less, who probably felt so inadequate and so small and unimportant. And that sucks. Mm -hmm. But it's nice that it only had to suck for her for a couple minutes, for a couple hours. But then... She can go get that new job, get that paper. And she looks back on that moment. And she's like, did it hurt my feelings? Yeah. Was I able to go and get what I earned and what I deserved because my friend was willing to give me that information? Also, yeah. And I'm sure that probably even strengthened your guys' friendship. Absolutely. When you were young and on Wall Street around all these like rich men, <laughs> what was the most shocking thing you saw, obviously, in terms of finances? Bro, <laughs> I was also single and dating at the time. Oh, wow. Let me tell you, these boys have no idea what they're doing with their money. I thought that was, I believe. So, okay, my hours on Wall Street were pretty atrocious. I was in the office at 545 in the morning and the market would close at four and I would have to do the wrap up report and I would have some client events. So when I would go on dates, oftentimes I had to date other people in the industry. So then they would understand my schedule. They wouldn't be mad if I had to cancel last minute, whatever. I dated so many guys who worked in my field who made four, five, six, seven times as much money as I did. And they would be in credit card debt. I'm like, how the hell are you in credit card debt? You literally make over half a million dollars a year. Like I was barely breaking six figures. And I was like, I don't have credit card debt. Like, what are you buying? And- There was one guy who had, crazy by the way, he had the fancy Rolex, he had Gucci loafers, the Ferragamo tie, 
He like had a sick apartment with like floor to ceiling windows. I was like, ooh, this guy has money. But then I was like, wait, does this guy have money? Because we have the same job. And and also I I think he's wearing it. Yeah, Yeah. he literally was wearing it. And I was like, how does this guy afford this? Because we have the same job. And he was only a year older than I was. And I was like, this doesn't like the math is not mathing here. And one night he got very drunk and he told me he was like, oh, I have five figure credit card debt. And I was like, how is that possible? Like, I'm looking at your five figure credit card debt right now. Yeah. Like, I'm let's just looking go, at let's it. Let's just make a stop at the real real. I, I know exactly. Like, where I know exactly it. where we can go to get this fixed. Yeah. And it, it was crazy to me because when you are hired to do a job where you are managing other people's millions to billions of dollars or doing multi-billion dollar transactions for companies like you would think these people would be good at personal finance or good at money and they're not because there's a big difference between working in the financial industry and having your own house in order Mm -hmm. and let me tell you like a lot of those boys were not figuring it out. I feel like in general, there's a big difference in life between like knowing something and doing something, you know, like so many of 100%. us know we should do something. But we're not going to do it. You know, I also think like one thing we don't talk about enough is that like money is so emotional. Yes. Like it's so easy for you to Google and figure out like the right thing to do. But it's a completely different story when you're like, I literally am so broke. But then your your best friend calls you and is like, I need you at my bachelorette party. It's seven days in Cabo. And you're like, are you nuts? Like seven days in Cabo, mm-hmm. we know that's not going to be a cheap trip. Like, oh, and you want matching outfits and we're getting a club, like a table at the club and we're chartering a yacht for a day. Like the numbers just Crazy. get higher and higher and higher. And like, I again, back in the day, bachelorette parties were like, oh, you and your friends live in the same city. Let's go out one Friday night to celebrate our friend getting married. It was like one night you would go out to the bar and your friends would pay for drinks. And like that at a maximum would be a couple hundred bucks. Now, bachelorette parties are like a full production. They're like week long. You go to a destination, you go on vacation, you get spa treatments, you get items. You know, there's accessories you're buying, the sashes, the crowns, the penis straws. And you're spending so much money for someone else's special moment. But like, what about your own financial goals? It's really hard to say no when your best friend's looking in the eye. And so I just say like, yes, it's very easy to be good with money in theory, but You also have to think about how you're going to feel in the moment and set up frameworks, write up scripts. Yeah. How do you say no to this in this situation? You have to write up a script basically and prep yourself to be able to back out of it. So say you call me and you're like, Viv, you have to come to my bachelorette. We're doing this thing in Cabo. I would call you back and I'd be like, hey, Kenzie, I love you so much. I am so, so excited for your special day. I'm so excited for this bachelorette party. I want to be really, really transparent. A seven day trip to Cabo is not in the cards for me right now. My budget's pretty tight. Not only am I paying off my student loans, I also am saving up for a down payment on a car or, you know, a down payment on a home, whatever you're doing. And being like, I really need to prioritize some of these financial milestones in my own life. That said, I want to support you as much as I can. I know you're having an engagement party. Is there a way that I could really support you there and do that in lieu of going on your bachelorette? Or is there a way that, you know, I could support you more the day of? And alternatively, if you really need all of your bridesmaids to be at your bachelorette party, I would like to respectfully step back. Let me know how I can support you in any other way. But like, I just can't do it right now financially. And I really, truly hope this doesn't impact our friendship in any way because I love you so much. If your friend actually gives a 
flying fuck about you, they will make it work. They will treat you with respect and kindness and they will appreciate that you were so honest with them. Somebody who only likes you if you're able to pay for something like that probably wasn't that good of a friend to begin with. Absolutely. I think out of anything in this episode, that is going to be the biggest takeaway. Yeah. Because that is such a, I hear it all the time. One of my best friends, she went to a college where everyone's getting married. She has like five friends that are getting married this year. And I'm just thinking like, I mean, these girls are like 23 and they're having five to six bachelorettes and weddings in one year. Like how- You're at the very tippy tip beginning of your career. You're probably not making that much money. Every single person wants their own destination. Every single person wants to feel special. So I'm 29 and I'm in the thick of it right now. Mm -hmm. Every single person I know got married last year is getting married this year, getting married next year. I'm getting married this year. So like, you know, I get it. Yeah. I get it better than anybody. But I basically told all of my girlfriends, I'm not doing any bridesmaids. So don't worry. You're not on the hook for buying a dress or doing anything like that. I don't think I'm doing a bachelorette if we're being totally transparent. If anything, I'll blend it with my birthday party and I will foot the entire bill. Yeah, that's how I feel. Because I feel it's like not fair. It. I it's don't think not it's fair. fair. Yeah. You are asking someone to take time off of their job, off of their work to come celebrate you. You foot the bill. Yeah, I agree. Like that. I always think about that. I'm like, I will. Yeah. I don't know. Something about it makes me like feel weird. But yeah, it's a very trying time these days. I mean, it really is like wedding culture in general. Like, oh, my God. Can I be crazy? Can I be so honest? Yes. Like I used to be the person who'd be like, look at all of these idiot brides blowing past their budgets. How irresponsible. I don't think it's the bride's fault. But do you know who I am now? The aforementioned idiot bride blowing past her budget (laughs) because I thought as a financy person and, and my fiance, he works in finance, too. So both of us are very financially minded. We're very good. We set a budget for our wedding jokes on us yeah because we blew right past it and i'm like why does everything cost so much and even stuff that we didn't want to spend a ton of money on when we ultimately got renderings so i'll give you an example i didn't want to spend a lot of money on flowers because i was like flowers don't matter to me we got the renderings of what the flower package the low 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 flower package would have been and i was like this is horrific this looks really bad like i like this one that's in the powerpoint and my planner was like oh you mean the super mega deluxe platinum edition. I'm like, oh, that sounds like it's expensive. And it's like, of course it is. And so there is so much emotion tied to spending and money and budgeting and saving and investing and everything. Frankly, you have to pick and choose your battles. I am not beating myself up over the fact that we're blowing past the wedding budget just a little bit. But my fiance and I had to have a really candid conversation. We are not taking any vacations this year. All of that money's going towards the wedding. And we've had to really scale back on some of the other things that we wanted to do as well. And, you know, we were planning on redoing the bathrooms in our apartment in New York. It's not happening this year. That's okay. But we've had to really reprioritize some of our dollars because, yeah, your budget can change, but it doesn't mean that you still don't want to be responsible for everything else. So, yeah, it's not easy when emotions involved. And I don't think I'm the type of girl who's like dreamed of my fairy tale wedding ever since I was little. But like when you're looking at the PowerPoints and they're showing you what it could look like and you're getting so hyped up, you're getting so excited. Like my wedding is a three day extravaganza. That's partially my fault. It's a destination <laughs> wedding. I'm getting married in Lake Como. I certainly could have picked a cheaper location. It's mm-hmm. the most expensive place to get married ever. But 
that area has meaning to us. That's where we got engaged. Italy was our very first vacation when we had no money. We took planes, trains, automobiles, connecting buses, like walked, ate power bars so that we could have one nice meal each day. And like Italy has such a strong connection for us. We want to make it really special for all of our guests, many of whom have never been to Italy before. So it's okay. You can spend a little bit more money on stuff that matters to you. Yeah, I think it's just different priorities. Also with bridal stuff, it's insane the prices. Like what they've done and they, if weddings attached, it's like 10X, it's crazy. Yeah. That completely makes sense. Okay, wrapping this up (laughs) with becoming rich AF, just off the top of your head, what are like your three go-to financial tips that rich people are doing and the rest of us don't know? One, negotiate your bills every single year. Call that Wi-Fi subscription, your cell phone provider, those streaming companies. You can even go to the website and just pretend to cancel. Just be like, cancel my subscription. A pop-up will come up and be like, just kidding, don't leave. What if we give you 50% off for the next year? So you should negotiate all of your bills because you can get them down every single year. I hate to say this. I call my cell phone provider every two years and I'm like, hey, I'm going to need the introductory offer again. Otherwise, I'm leaving. And they give it to me. And then I say, hey, actually, I know this is going to be only for one year. Can you do it for two? And they're like, fine, we'll do it for two. And then in two more years, I call again and I ask again. Mm -hmm. And so I just think it's something that's really important. Rich people are always negotiating and you should be too. Two, rich people are always, always networking. Your network is your net worth. Absolutely. It is not the smartest person in the room that gets paid the most. It is the person that who knows the most important people, who knows what's going on and knows when the next opportunity is coming. So it's not even the smartest person getting the best opportunity. Never. Ever. It's the person who has the best network. And I'll be honest, like I probably should not have been able to get my job in media out of a job from Wall Street. But it was because my mentor knew a woman who believed her and my mentor vouched for me. She hired me and I ended up being a great employee. So make sure you're networking. And three, I would say rich people don't compete with each other. They see each other as a collaborative effort versus competition. So it's very much you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And I think a lot of us, especially women, feel like there's only enough room for one of us to succeed. So you're always trying to compete with other women. Whereas if you come to the realization that like we can all win. And in fact, when one of us wins, it means that more of us can win. That starts setting you on the right path to have the right mentality to make a lot more money and encourage all of the women in your life to make a lot more money. Absolutely. I love that. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can they find you and get the book? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Everybody can find my book wherever books are sold. It's titled Rich AF the Winning Money Mindset That Will Change Your Life by Vivian Tu. And you can find me all across social media as Your Rich BFF. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. If you love this episode, please don't forget to leave a rating and review. It really helps the show grow. If you want to follow me behind the scenes, you can find me on Instagram or YouTube at Kinsey Elizabeth or on TikTok at Kinsey the Texan. I drop new episodes every Thursday and they're also available to watch on YouTube. Thanks so much for listening and I will talk to y'all next Thursday. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.